Welcome to Global Journalist, a show by journalist for journalist and those who depend on our work. I'm producer Matt Schmidtdeal, and in today's episode, we're going to talk about collaborative journalism on a global scale. Increasingly, journalists have begun to move away from the lone wolf model of reporting to working in teams, often across news organizations and across borders. This pandemic provides a perfect example of why this is happening. Social, economic, and health challenges, such as COVID-19, climate change, drug and human trafficking, and corruption cross borders. Now, journalists are crossing them too. Here at Global Journalist, we spoke to reporters, editors, and founders of international organizations producing some of the most compelling and important cross-border news stories you'll find across the world today. One of them is Laurent Richard, the Paris-based documentary filmmaker founded Forbidden Stories, a group that recently began publishing The Cartel Project, a series of investigations into the Mexican drug cartels that have yet to be brought to justice for the deaths of scores of journalists. Our main mission is to continue the work of assassinated, uh, threatened, or jailed reporters. We we are not doing advocacy. We are not doing. We are not campaigning. We are not here directly to defend human rights. But we are basically just journalists, and we are using journalism to defend journalism. The Cartel Project brought together 60 journalists across 18 countries and 25 international media organizations to pursue the stories of their murdered colleagues. These journalists are killed because they tried to expose international crimes like money laundering, corruption, and human and environmental rights violations. Richard says these global crimes need global answers. And the solution is collaborative journalism. And so collaborative journalism is, for me, the best way to defeat censorship. It's, for me, the best way to bring some protection. Collaboration brings protection. There makes no sense to kill journalists if you have 45 other journalists ready to, to continue the work. It all started in early 1975 with an organization now headquartered at the Missouri School of Journalism, IRE, or Investigative Reporters and Editors, a group of reporters who wanted to share tips founded the organization in Reston, Virginia, and started laying plans for a national conference the following year. Just days before the conference, one of the investigative journalists who had been invited to speak there was murdered. One of IRE's charter members, Brent Houston, remembers what became known as the Arizona Project. A number of journalists from different organizations, about 40 journalists, I think maybe it's 25 different organizations banded together uh, to finish his work in terms of investigation to organize crime and corruption in Arizona, but and also to not solve the crime, but understand who had conspired to kill him. And both of those things were accomplished. Uh, one of the things that came out of that was the leader of that, Bob Green, or one of the leaders, said, you know, we want to, people to know that if you kill one of us, you get 40 of us. And if you kill 40 of us, you'll get 400 of us. And he saw that as a, an insurance policy. But what it also did was it proved that journalists who were competitive from different organizations could work together and produce something much greater uh, than they could have done individually. 
Laurent Richard cites the Arizona Project as the inspiration for Forbidden Stories. And the collaborative journalism it represents has also resulted in many other spinoffs. Here's Drew Sullivan of the Organized Crime and Corruption Project, known by its initials OCCRP. OCCRP started in about 2006, not really as a formal organization, but as an informal organization that was started by um, two reporters who ran centers in Eastern Europe, myself and Paul Radu. Paul was running the center in Romania, and I was running the Center for Investigative Reporting in Bosnia. And so we um, we were working on similar stories on organized crime and corruption. And when we compared notes, we realized we were really writing about the same people. So we decided to cooperate um, and work on them together. And, and then eventually we brought other people in and um, got them to help us. And uh, eventually it became a network in Eastern Europe, really looking at um, organized crime and corruption. These big journalism collaborations have gotten big results. For example, the Panama Papers. So-called Panama Papers. Panama Papers. A massive leak of documents from a firm in Panama City called Mossack Fonseca. The massive amount of data was first leaked to German newspaper Süddeutsche Zeitung. It was shared with the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. The Panama Papers are an unprecedented leak of 1.5 million files from the database of the world's fourth biggest offshore law firm. The millions of leaked financial and legal records exposed a system that enables crime, corruption, and wrongdoing that was previously hidden by secretive offshore companies. At OCCRP, where the reporters have done a series on quote-unquote laundromats, or international banking schemes used by international kleptocrats to hide their stolen money. Drew Sullivan calculates the impact in dollars and cents. We've had about $7.3 billion taken away from bad people and given back to governments. Um, but we've also had literally hundreds of people investigated or arrested. Um, and we've brought down, I think we're up to about three leaders of various countries um, who have lost elections or, or been indicted because of uh, the work that we did. These kinds of collaborations represent a big change in journalism, says Rosenthal Alves, the night chair in journalism and professor at the University of Texas. Traditionally, he says investigative journalism was a lone ranger kind of thing, the, the lone wolf uh, journalist who was, you know, in total secret. Even even in their own newsroom, nobody knew about it, and and it was. Uh, uh, isolated, and now you know it, they they collaborate more in in many aspects. Two things have changed that Rosenthal says. One, I think, is that um, journalists in the last twenty twenty five years realize that uh, whenever they are investigating corruption, organized crimes, or other mal malfeasance. They, they always find international connections to that. So uh, even when you are in, in a country trying to do, um, to cover domestic issues, you, you stumble into those uh, international connections. And then the advent of the internet 
facilitated what previously was very expensive, which is communication among uh, journalists to collaborate. That doesn't mean it's easy. Drew Sullivan of OCCRP says. Yeah, cross-border journalism is really hard because you're working with people across cultures. Um, so you have communications issues with language. Some people um, don't speak really good English or don't speak really good French. And so you have a problem. You know, we have half of our team is working in Russian, you know, half in Serbian and half in English, you know. And so um, that's always a that's always a challenge to be able to make sure you understand everybody. But more importantly, um, everybody has different standards of reporting that they do. You know, what level of proof is necessary? Is it OK to use unnamed sources? You know, um, some people it's OK to we don't use unnamed sources. Um, so, so it's challenging to, to make sure that you're all reporting in the same way. Sometimes, Sullivan adds, the barrier isn't about language. It's about attitude. It's very difficult, for instance, to work with American journalists on cross borders. Um, the world journalists are much more kind of uh, willing to cooperate. American journalists are still... Um, if somebody cheats you in a deal, it's an American journalist because... Um, you know, they're very much um, about competition with other journalists. One example of the advantages of collaborative journalism came after a massive explosion in Beirut, Lebanon this past year that killed at least 182 people and injured more than 6,000. Within weeks, the OCCRP assembled a team of 22 reporters to start digging into what happened. In video from the day of the blast, you can see white flashes, what appear to be fireworks, going off before the massive explosion. Their story was published on August 21st, 2020, and found that the circumstances for the tragedy were set in the baffling nowhere world of offshore trade, where secretive companies and pliant governments allow questionable actors to work in the shadows. Among those secretly connected to the cargo ship and its final voyage were a hidden shipping tycoon, a notorious bank, and businesses in East Africa previously investigated for ties to illicit arms trade. OCCRP's Rana Sabag says, so yeah, I don't think anybody would have done it um, on their own. Uh, it's no longer um, the, ti the times where only one, a one-man show will succeed. It has to be a multi-man and women show to basically get the best results and make sure that more people and more countries are able to read it. French freelancer Emmanuel Fredintal says cross-border reporting isn't just a matter of collaborating on data gathering, but sharing ideas. Well, I, I think that uh, collaboration is really crucial to journalism because people bring different viewpoints, different experiences, and different skills. OCCRP's Paul Radu adds, And it's always, this is one of the beauties of the, of the network. You bring so many brains together so that sparks will go from one place to another. In the Caribbean, Kiran Maharaj has started a collaborative project to bring together reporters in a region where we are really countries separated by water. But in terms of our history and our heritage, um, there's a lot of, of, of commonality. 
Um, and so it has really allowed us to come together to realize, you know what, if we have to tell these stories, let us increase our resources through the cross-border collaboration. Um, we've been able to, to get more ideas from the larger group. Reporters who do risky reporting see another advantage. The story can't be stopped by shutting down a reporter in one single country. One of the things we've been suggesting from the Global Investigative Journalism Network point of view is to collaborate as much as you can so that if these lawsuits do come at you, that you have a way of the news continuing to get, get out. Sometimes, as in the case of Don Bowles or the reporters in Mexico, the threat is far worse than lawsuits. Some journalists advocate collaboration as a kind of insurance policy. If we do not support each other and if we do not speak out against injustice, we are risking dangers that will not impact only that person, but to impact the whole community. And when the um, wrongdoers see this huge um, you know, outbreak of popular support or of professional support, when they see professional investigations, professional NGOs, uh, collaboratives, international organizations all speak out, they will think 10 times before touching a journalist. After one of her colleagues had his throat slit for investigating ISIS, Sabag helped extract two other Syrian journalists, first to Turkey and then to Europe. Two reporters today um, are based in Copenhagen and in Sweden. And they continue with their lives. They're still working with me and They've won a few awards, so I'm very, very proud of them. But back then, it was a big, big trauma for all of us. You know, the worst thing that can happen for for a boss is to basically deal with the human suffering, the loss of life, the, the injuries. Where does all the money for this work come from? Every one of these organizations we've talked about is a nonprofit. Brent Houston says that's no accident. And then one thing that really changed journalism was there was a nonprofit movement uh, in journalism internationally before there was in the U.S. The U.S. had some good examples of it. OCCRP Sullivan agrees. What we found is that, you know, the model of nonprofit investigative reporting has been around since 1969 with the Center for Investigative Reporting in San Francisco. Um, that model has worked since 1969, you know. We're at fifth, over 50 years now, that model has been working. Um, and we believe it will continue to work. You know, we are funded by governments and by uh, large institutional donors and then private individuals. Um, and so as long as people say, I want investigative reporting, I value this, um, that there will be money that is found to do this. That's key to enabling hard-hitting journalism in countries that are poor says Kiran Maharaj. And the resources, investigative reporting is very expensive. It's very time consuming. They, they can't do it. Then some of them, you know, may shy away from allowing certain stories to be told because influential people or, or companies who contribute to their bottom line may be named. So, you know, they, they tend to move away from it. Um, a lot of the advertising revenue in our countries comes from um, governments and states even though OCCRP's Sullivan says it's difficult to pay salaries right now. 
he calls cross-border investigative reporting a growth industry. The, the world is, a, is, a, is a going through a very strange time, and I would say it's the, it's the growth of autocracy, the growth of organized crime, the globalization of corruption. So there needs to be a lot more investigative reporters. And he says the message of collaborative reporting remains the same as it was when the Arizona Project started to bring Don Bull's killers to justice. You know, we're not going anywhere. We're going to continue reporting no matter what. Um, they're never getting rid of us. They have to kill us all. And if they kill us all, then they'll, we'll be replaced by 100 more. So it, it's just not, you know, people are not going, going to stop reporting. Of course, in developing countries and in third world countries and in dictatorships, the threat is even more intense. So by belonging to a community, you always feel like you have some sort of protection and you feel stronger about that. You know that if anything happens to you, there will be people who will speak out on your behalf. That's it for this edition of Global Journalist. Special thanks to Laurent Richard, Brent Houston, Drew Sullivan, Rosenthal Alves, Rana Sabag, Emmanuel Fredunthal, Paul Radu, and Kiran Maharaj for speaking with us. From producers Suja McGinnis, Rebecca Zhang, Zoe Shed, and executive producers Trevor Hook and Taylor Freeman. And special thanks to Kathy Kiley for her guidance on this project. Once again, I am Matt Schmidtdeal, and thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time on Global Journalist.